now this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for forensic science professionals and anyone who is interested in learning more about how real crime laboratories work. In episode four of the 2018 NIJ R&D season, Just Science speaks with Dr. Shamsi Berry from the University of Mississippi Medical Center about her research with standardizing a large-scale, whole-body CT image database. In 2010, the Office of the Medical Investigator for New Mexico was awarded an NIJ grant where they did high-resolution whole-body CT scans. Fast forward six years later, and another NIJ grant was awarded to create a free access decedent CT database, making those whole-body CTs available to forensic researchers. There will be over 15,000 autopsies that capture key data and whole-body CT images, which will be an invaluable resource when it releases in late 2018. This season is funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here is your host, Dr. John Morgan. And welcome to Just Science, the podcast for forensic science professionals. I'm John Morgan, your host with RTI's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. If you're listening in today, then please make sure you subscribe. Make sure you've told your friends and colleagues learn more about the research and improvements in practice that are affecting forensic science. And today we have something that's going to be, just a, I think, a really fascinating topic for, for many, many folks out there. And we have Dr. Shansi Danishvari Berry, an assistant professor in the Department of Health Informatics and Information Management at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. She's been working with the folks over in New Mexico. And a few years ago, NIJ funded the uh, development of a system to use uh, CT scans to uh, look at decedents in a medical examiner facility. And now they have a second grant to actually make that database material available, those high-resolution CT scans, available to the research public. And so we're going to be talking to Dr. Berry today about what they've done thus far and what's going to be in the decedent CT database. And that'll be relevant to not only the research folks out there, but also, the, as she says in her biography, the ways in which we can use the data collected from medical examiners and CT scans to improve the health of the living. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Your PhD is actually in anthropology. Yes. So I got my PhD <laughs> in anthropology in 2011. But while I was working on the PhD, I became involved with another database project with Heather Edgar, where she had a grant through the NLM to create a database, an orthodontic database, with records, diagnoses, casts, and x-rays. And my job was to do the data standardization. So I got involved with informatics. And then after that, I applied for and was accepted into the informatics fellowship. And that was sort of how I, I switched over to informatics. But there's a lot of overlap between anthropology and informatics. So I use both of them on a daily basis. Okay. Well, that's fascinating stuff. The project itself is occurring in New Mexico, but had you connection with Mexico before this, or is it just Mississippi's work in health informatics that sort of brought you into it? Well, actually, I got my PhD at the University of New Mexico, and I started working on this project 
as my master's thesis for my second master's in biomedical science while I was in my informatics fellowship. And so I was actually the one that started putting everything together and that did the research to find out what variables we should actually associate with the images, what would be the most useful to the widest variety of researchers. So I used the modified Delphi method to reach consensus with people from informatics, anthropology, forensics, medicine, dentistry, medical devices, and basically we whittled it down to 59 data variables that people wanted associated with the images. And We've added a few on to that for our own personal research interests. So that's how I got started in the project. And then I was looking for jobs, and so since I wasn't associated with any university, I couldn't be the PI or co-PI on the database on this project. And so Heather Edgar stepped up and is the PI on it, and I was listed as the biomedical informatics consultant on it. And, and she then, is at the University of New Mexico still, and right? And she is at the University of New Mexico, yes. And then once I got the job at the University of Mississippi Medical Center, that was how the University of Mississippi Medical Center became involved in it because that's where I wound up. <laughs> that's interesting. So one of the things that comes to mind about this whole issue, of course, is that death investigation and the ways in which a, a medical examiner or I guess we should say a forensic anthropologist looks at that. It's almost a clinical kind of thing. There's a great deal of variability with respect to whether how they're trained or how they're viewing a particular case or what the medical history is in terms of how they will describe diseases and conditions associated with the individual and with the death. That is one of the hardest parts of this problem, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of variability, not just how they're describing things, but what they describe on the case. So that made the data set have a lot of holes in it, that they were collecting certain information on some cases and not information on others. And if we wanted to collect that variable, there was this hole there that it wasn't in, in the case records that they were collecting. That's why we had to yeah, add in calling next of kin. Right. Let's take a step back on that a little bit. So you sure. have, uh, my latest information shows you have 11,000 whole body CT x-ray images in the database. Is that still about where you're at right now? or how many Actually, we're up to 15,249 is the final count. Okay. That's a lot. That's, it is a lot. <laughs> so is there any comparable database out there of CT scan of decedents? Because it's relatively new type of approach to looking at autopsy. Yeah, no, actually there are no comparable databases out there. If you look just at like CT scan databases, you can find some, but they're usually not of the full body and there's no associated information with them. There's some projects, I think it's called the whole body or the whole skeleton, I cannot for the life of me remember it right now, project that it's a compilation of like 5,000 scans of people that they've put together, but they've merged it into one individual. There is no comparable database out there where you can look through 15,000 full-body, high-resolution CT scans, especially of decedents, but even living people. There's no comparable database to this out there at all. And these make up a fairly solid percentage of even the overall deaths in New Mexico during the study period. Yeah, I think it's 35% of the deaths receive an autopsy, and about 85% of those are in this database. So that really makes it unique as well, because what you're seeing is almost a systematic examination of the hopefully most relevant deaths in a geographic area, which makes it, I think, it, that adds to the value of the database, I think. 
Yeah, and I know some people are worried because it comes from a medical examiner's database that it's going to be skewed towards homicides and suicides and violent deaths. But about 50% of it is natural deaths. So it's not as biased as some people worry that it could be. Sure. This is a, a personal curiosity because we're very uh, heavily into it, RTI, trying to understand things like the opioid epidemic, novel psychoactive substances, and, and that kind of thing. Are some of the ways in which you're coding it actually associated with things from forensic toxicology as well? We're coding whether or not the next of kin report drug use or, and especially opioid use, but we're not adding in results from the toxicology reports or anything like that. Let's think instead in terms of how you're imagining it uh, or hoping that it will be used with respect to the research side. So in what ways have you tried to build it so that it's amenable to research and what kinds of research do you all anticipate will be applied to the database? Well, really we feel that the list of research questions that can be asked of the database are huge and just keep growing as, as we tell more and more people, more and more ideas come up for how we could actually use the database. I'm personally interested in using it to look at body mass estimation from the skeleton, as well as coming up with a new algorithm to better capture overall health from weight other than BMI. I feel that BMI is really a flawed tool that was used just to give an indication of population-based health, and now we're using it on the individual level. So I feel like there's a lot of different factors that can be modified to BMI to get a better picture of overall health. So that's how I personally want to use the database for my own research. I know Heather Edgar is planning on doing some research that has to do with Hispanics and the different subgroups to Hispanics that are present within the database and their overall health. I mean, there's so many things that you can gather from this database because you have the full body CT scan, you have health information, lifestyle information, and then we have some decomposition information as well. So there's, there's a lot of information in there, and I feel like the questions are just endless. So it's, it's hard for me to give examples other than what I plan to do with it. But I have had people come up and say they want to do some machine learning using the database. So I think that could be really interesting, especially like maybe detecting cancer at an earlier stage by doing some machine learning to teach a machine to capture abnormal growth. So I mean, there's a ton of stuff you can do with the database. Sure. Well, I love what you talked about with respect to trying to understand better how to examine health. And I think you're exactly right. And I shouldn't be saying this. I'm, you know, I graduated from Hopkins, and Hopkins is a huge public health school, and they've become a <laughs> very study at, at looking at these kind of broad population-based examinations of health. But in some respects, I think they can be very misleading. I mean, you're exactly right. You know, what individuals vary so much, and the idea of saying, I'm going to take this broad public health study of whether BMI is important or saccharin mm -hmm. or whatever else it is, and I'm going to relate it to my personal health profile, is very problematic and is a logical leap that I think we sometimes trust too much. Right. I mean, we know that physiologically there are differences between males and females. So why wouldn't there be a difference in how weight is related to their overall health? 
we know that there are differences between having small frame and having a large frame, that usually if you have a large frame, you're going to have slightly more mass associated. So how come that's not built into the BMI as well? Additionally, you have bodybuilders being classified as morbidly obese, but they have none of the comorbidities associated with that. So that's a misclassification. So all of those things really go in to show that BMI isn't really capturing overall health the way we want it to, and yet every health system is using it, and it's part of what you're mandated to collect in the electronic health record. So I really feel that there's something better out there, but it's really hard to determine what could be better without having a really large sample to pull from. And this, I think, is going to be a great database to use to get at that idea. Well, yeah, especially given the fact that half of the uh, deaths in there are natural deaths, that helps in enormously in trying to relate specific markers of health and well-being, visceral fat or whatever else right. it may be, to the individual. You can actually look in great detail using these CT scans at what's going on with an individual who might have coronary heart disease that was the reason for their death or whatever else it might be. Right. And, you know, we can also look at things like where the fat's located in the body. Is it distributed throughout the body? Is it around organs? Things like that, which research has shown might have a large impact on your health as to how your body's actually storing the fat. So that's another thing that we can look into with it as well. That's fascinating, and it, it raises this issue, though, of coding it with that level of detail that's necessary to make it work. So you use something called Unified Medical Language System. How does somebody approach using UMLS to try to understand how to access the database and how it would be structured for a research plan? So I used UMLS to basically get an idea of these variables that we were collecting, what standards already existed out there for coding those variables. So let's say um, something as simple as medical diagnoses. What different languages or coding standards are out there that we could apply to the database. So for medical diagnoses, you could use NOMED CT codes or you could use ICD-10 codes in order to determine what their medical diagnosis was. NOMED is electronic health records and the ICD-10 is for billing? Yes. Well, they're both used in the electronic medical record in, in different ways. So the SNOMED CT codes are used to actually put in the diagnosis. They're very specific, and there's really over 100,000 codes that you can use. The ICD-10 codes, it's what you're going to be using for billing primarily, but it can also be used in other places in the medical record. But those have 70,000 codes, the ICD-10 codes. And there are differing levels that you can use. So you can use it at like sort of a, a higher group level, which is what we looked into, and that lowers the number of codes to about 2,000. But I compared those methods, and SNOMED CT had way too much detail. There's no way for us to get down to the detail of it in 100,000 codes. And then we looked at using ICD-10, which had 2,000 diagnosis category codes. And I looked, and there were a lot of diseases that we weren't going to see in this population, such as yaws and pinta. You're not going to see that. You'll see that more in tropical environments. So I was like, I don't know that we need to capture it at that detail. And then other things like malaria were the specific different types of malaria you could have. And we're not going to have that from our medical records. And the next of kin is not going to know that. 
So we really had to say, okay, you know what, neither one of these systems that are already built and put into place are going to work with the level of knowledge that we have from the system as well as calling next of kin. So every time I used the UMLS, it was to determine what standards have already been created, and then I reviewed those standards and decided whether or not we were going to use one of those, modify it, or create something new. So when it came to diagnoses, we wound up creating something new, and we put together a list of what we thought were the 20 most common diagnoses that we would see in our population, and at the level that we would see listed in the medical examiner's database and that next of kin could convey to us. Right. So let's take an example. So when you're doing your improved algorithm for assessing somebody's uh, health based on, you know, coronary risk factors or whatever else it might be, is that something where there are particular diagnoses that relate to also the state of the body in terms of, like, could I search on people who have certain types of liver malfunction or anything like that? How does that work? No, so it doesn't get as specific as that into the medical diagnoses. We have things like, you know, high blood pressure, diabetes, so you could search for those. Where basically we've made it so that the diagnoses are more at a higher level, and if you needed more specifics, you'd be able to narrow it down and say, I have this list of 100 people. Then you could go contact the IRB, get permission to contact next of kin again, and we would be able to give you our next of kin database, and you could call and get more specific information or get permission to go look at more detailed information in the record. So it's important, I think, for people to realize because uh, I know, uh, you know it would freak me out a little bit if I were in the database, even after I were dead. But the database is de-identified to the extent that you can de-identify it. Yes, and it is de-identified and it's HIPAA compliant even though HIPAA does not apply to the data. So usually personal health information for decedents has to be under HIPAA for 50 years after death. So because of that, I made sure that we're collecting things like birth date and death date, but we're only reporting it in years. So there's not specific detailed dates on it. We're not including zip code where it's only the first three digits. So everything is HIPAA compliant, even though HIPAA does not apply because in the state of New Mexico, the medical examiner's data is public record, and so it's actually subject to a different law. And then some of the disease coding that's being done and disorder coding is being done is being done partly based on the original autopsy, but also based for some subset on next of kin data that you all have collected yourselves. Exactly, yeah. So we're getting some of the information from the medical examiner's database and some of the information from next of kin. We're collecting um, cause of death, contributing cause of death, and those things are coming only from the medical examiner's database. And then we're collecting other things like a history of broken bones, and those are coming from next of kin. And then there's fields like current medications. That's coming from both the database as well as next of kin. Tell me where you're at with respect to the construction of the database in a format that would be accessible. Right now, it is not yet accessible to researchers. Is that right? That's right. So right now, we're just in the final stages of putting together the database, and we've started putting together the website that will be associated with it. I should say all of this will be freely accessible on the web as long as you are a bona fide researcher. So you'll have to fill out a data use form, and you'll have to agree to a data use agreement. 
but then you'll have access to the metadata, and then you can request access to the CT scans, and you'll be actually able to download those onto your computer. So everything is accessible through the web. So we're hoping to have something ready to go by the end of this year, and then add to it as time goes on, increase the data set. But we're like at the very last stages of finishing up the database, and it's looking great. And I'm just about to enter in our first bit of data into one of the tables. And I have three other tables ready to add some other information in. So we're just about to start calling next of kin and collecting that information. So we're quite excited. When it's available, how will people get to it? It'll be through University of New Mexico. I don't have the website address yet. I don't know that we've created that yet but it will be through University of New Mexico. It will be a website, and probably it easily pop up if you do a, a Google search once we've created it. And I think it's going to use a, another program in order to download the CT scans, but we're just in the final decision-making on that. This is a, an awful lot of data, and I can tell you uh, we've been involved from the FTCOE in several projects to maintain databases for the forensic science community, as well as as RTI to build them. And it is a major enterprise. This is going to be the most amount of data I've ever seen in, in any database relevant to the forensic science community other than an actual criminal information database like IAPIS. I mean, uh, it's, it's going to be huge, and there's a ton of information, and like I said, it's both health and lifestyle information, which, you know, a lot of databases would just focus on one or the other, but we wanted it to be accessible and useful for the widest variety of researchers. We didn't want to just make it for forensics or just for anthropology. We wanted to include all these different fields. So we questioned all these different fields, and they determined that these 59 variables were the ones that they were interested in. And so I think that makes it even better, because now it's useful to a wide variety of researchers. Yeah, well, I congratulate you, because you know being able to come up with a model whereby the University of New Mexico is willing and able to maintain this very large data set is not an easy undertaking. It's not to be underestimated especially when you have 15,249 CT scans in it. That's an yeah. enormous amount of data. Yeah, it's a huge amount of data. And I really view this as New Mexico was the perfect place to do this because of the laws that are present regarding medical examiner data and because they were the first ones to start CT scanning on, on all autopsies. So it really was the perfect place to have all of this come together. But I plan on trying to get this out to other states as well and trying to build on the database and add stuff to it as well. Because right now it's really nice. About 35% of the individuals in the database are Hispanic origin and about 10 to 12% are Native American, which are really underserved populations. But we have a very small number of African Americans present in New Mexico in the database. So I'm really looking at trying to see if there are other states with other underserved populations that we could add that data in as well. I want to ask you a kind of a slightly different question, and that is go back to the beginning. You were reluctant to call this virtual autopsy. Can you kind of share with us how this kind of a data really isn't that? I understand that you're trying to do research work. Is that your primary concern, or is it the term in, in general? It's just because I know that the research they've done is looking at certain types of causes of death, 
So I don't know necessarily that it would work for every single kind of cause of death, and that's the only reason that I hesitate in calling it a virtual autopsy, just because I'm not 100% sure what they found yet with that project. Right, of course. Well, yeah, I mean, any kind of data, no matter even detailed image data like this, is going to be fairly limited, and you really need to be looking at the full picture of the individual to some degree to be able to uh, understand certain aspects of what you're seeing. It would be fascinating to tie this in with things like uh, genetic information and biochemistry from the individual and you know, blood chemistry, for example, and things of that nature. Well, I'm already thinking about what I can do for the next one. So, you know, I think that this is a great starting step and we're making a, a big leap from where we have been since no database like this exists. I think we're starting out with a nice, good, solid step. But I definitely think that we can add stuff to this database either by adding in from other states and other race and ethnicities, as well as, you know, adding on the variables that we're collecting. You know, there is more data that's present in the medical examiner's database. It's just that it's not standardized, so it's very hard to pull that information out. So I'm actually using a program that uses natural language processing to try to get that medication history out of the database because thankfully the only part that's standardized with that is it says medications or prescriptions, a semicolon, and then the name of the prescription. So I can actually use natural language processing to pull those out. But it's a difficult thing to do because there's so much free text in the database. So I know there are things that we could add on in the future. It would just take a little bit of time, more time than we have, to actually pull that data out. Yeah, and I appreciate your point of view here where you're trying to make this about more than just forensic anthropology. And obviously that's where, you know, our listenership is going to be coming at it and, mm -hmm. and have the most interest. But it is a big deal because, you know, there hasn't been as much scientific research to help the death investigation community advance to the next level. There's not a whole lot of understanding as to the variability and in interpretation and how that relates to the accuracy or the reliability of the work of the forensic anthropologist. I think this is a great step forward in that regard. Yeah, I mean, something as simple as how the body is identified. You know, it, it's going to be visual, driver's license, etc. And even that isn't standardized. That's a free text field. So I cannot tell you how often visual is misspelled in the database or, <laughs> you know, they put in the specific state for the driver's license. So you can't, if you're trying to do a simple search or a query in the database, you have to know every single way that visual is misspelled you know, sometimes people just put a V for visual and don't type out the word. You can't query very easily on that kind of information if it's not standardized. So one of my big things is I really would like to be involved with medical examiner's offices and actually helping them to standardize the way that they input the data so that you have cleaner data to use for research. As it is now, most medical examiner's offices are going to export that data and then clean it by hand and then use it for research. Well, there's no reason to have that extra step. You want to be able to have clean data in your database. So there's always going to be the need for free text fields in the medical examiners, but a lot of information can be standardized and should be. Yeah, I agree, and it's going to be a very difficult issue. One of the other programs that we're involved in is the National 
forensic uh, laboratory information system, which up to now has been limited to crime laboratories, but now the, the issue is to expand it out into medical examiner corner offices to try to understand this other aspect, which is the uh, aspect in which controlled substances are related to death and, and in what way. A very complex problem, and it's the same issue, though, and that is we need to have enough common terminology to be able to at least understand how Florida relates to North Carolina, to New Mexico, and so on, in order to really develop an appropriate picture of the problem and really take advantage of what is enormous knowledge that is being created when somebody yeah. does an autopsy. You know, we focus so much on electronic health records and standardizing those and making sure that that data is clean. I don't know why we've sort of skipped over the medical examiner data because that data set is amazing, has so much information and can be used for so much research, but it's sort of been forgotten about as far as standardization and making sure that things are interoperable between systems. So you have data that you could collate, but it's going to take a lot of time and energy to merge systems together when, you know, it just requires some standardization and an informatician like myself that loves doing that kind of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're lucky to have you involved in the in the work, and I, you know, my belief, because I think some forensic anthropologists would look on this and say, oh, gosh, really? I think most of them, if not all of them, would then come back and say, yes, what you're saying is exactly on target, and we want people to be able to take advantage of the information, because that's the main reason why medical examiners do their job, is they want to improve, as you're saying, the health of the living. They want to make an impact on medical practice more broadly as well, so but what you're doing is going to be enormously important in that regard. You know, I found it very interesting. I've been traveling around the country this year, disseminating information about this project through posters and talks. And I have found that when I went to NAME, the National Association of Medical Examiners, you know, everybody understood exactly what we were doing and was very interested in it. When I presented it at an informatics conference, people were very confused and said, what does the dead have to do with the living? How is this going to improve the living? And I said, hey, there is so much data here about their lives, and we know exactly what they died from and how they died. This is a huge amount of information that we can use to improve the health of the living, and nobody's really looked at it. So I've really opened up some eyes at the informatics conference that the medical examiner data, it's really good data, and it's going to be really useful for improving the health of the living. That's fantastic. That's very, very exciting. And, and I, I can't wait for you all to be able to open up the database and see some of the research that comes out of the work that you're doing. Very much appreciate you, Dr. Shansi Danishvari Berry, for being with us on Just Science to share your perspective today. Thank you so much for having me. I've had a great time. Next week, Just Science speaks with Dr. Jamie Wheland and Dr. Christopher Mulligan from Illinois State University about their research topic, Assessing the Impact of Implementing Portable Mass Spectrometers for On-Site Drug Evidence Processing. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding. <laughs>